What was our banter about last time? I think it was just about. Mm-hmm. I think we were bidding. Last time we discussed the miracle of flight, we began and ended with the Germans. The Germans are nothing if not supreme aviators. And it therefore should come as no surprise that it was the Germans who, perhaps in recompense for their atrocious behavior during World War II, brought humanity in contact with the cosmos. Well, of course, American scientists were the first to develop rockets. Yeah, but we lacked a certain passion. A certain will to bring man to the stars. However... German scientists like Werner von Braun helped develop the first rockets used in combat, and they ultimately saw space exploration as an attainable goal. Fortunately, though, we had the will to Mm. eschew ethics in favor of human progress, and with a little help from the KGB, executed the last cooperative effort between the states and the Russians for the next five decades, known as Operation Three-Hole Punch. Agents on both sides ushered 48 German scientists directly from the Nuremberg courthouse into cargo crates, where they were, ironically, gassed and divided between the two superpowers. Three days later, half of them were brought to a decrepit underground laboratory beneath the White House, where President Truman and his entire cabinet awaited them. He berated them in German. His native tongue. Threw each of them a bucket and a rag, and he said, get to scrubbing. At which point, Postmaster General Robert E. Hannigan began wildly flogging the captives with a cat of nine tails. Hmm. Hey, who did von Braun go to? Stalin insisted that he go with the Soviets. Some say that he had plans to use his scientific genius to resurrect his long dead, on-again, off-again ally V.I. Lenin. Which was entirely feasible, considering that the Soviets hold most of the firsts in the The space race. race. Think about it. First satellite in space. First dog in space. First man in space. First object on the moon. First boy in space. First birth in space. But by grace, why did we race to space in the first place? Well, the impetus to make contact with stellar bodies came from a humble place. Earth. Interesting. It was that simplest of human desires, greed, which propelled us to the stars. Oh, greed? Both the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, as well as the Russian Air and Space Agency, hemorrhaged money attempting lunar glory. It's entirely arguable that the Soviet Union bankrupted itself and collapsed due to, no pun intended, astronomical net losses from space exploration. But it was thought that space contained vast riches. Think of it. Whenever we're outside... And look up at the sky. What do I always call the moon? The pearl of the sky. You're very poetic. I love your poems. Thank you. Well, it was once thought that the moon was made of pearls. Well, it was also thought that it was made of cheese. Yeah. And how much does a pound of aged Asiago go for these days? Touche. Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Khrushchev all believed that the moon was a place of untold riches. Moon dust whatever it was made of, was assumed to be worth its weight in gold. Who knows what it could have been used for? Weapons? Rocket fuel? Bread? (laughs) Surely, if anything, the Soviets had figured out bread by then. People waited in lines for it. Huh. Well, as we will learn throughout today's program, the Soviets were overeager and underprepared for the complexities of space travel. They were the kind of people who would throw stuff at a wall and see what sticks, and, uh, well, unfortunately for them, space is known to be quite slippery. (laughs) However, in October of 1957, the Soviets scored the first space point by launching Sputnik, a tin can with an antenna, out of the atmosphere, 
written into history. It was the first ever man-made thing to reach space, and they did it well before we'd so much as starved a chimpanzee in a test capsule. America responded in kind, firing their own useless satellite into orbit. When it crashed into Soviet territory three months later, a Russian recovery team found a sturdy, charred steel cylinder, which opened to reveal a single piece of paper that said deal with it. Wow. Written in FDR's handwriting, no That's less. That's pretty good. NASA don't play. Never did. Never will. The Russians, for a time, also didn't play. On the morning of April 12th, 1961, they sent an astonishing 26 manned rockets into the air, one of which made world history when it happened to breach the stratosphere and send the first human being, Yuri Gagarin, careening into space. It's very apt that you say human being rather than man. <laughs> well, why's that? Why? Well, because, look, Yuri Gagarin drank his tea with mm, cream and sugar. He washed his clothing on delicate. He allegedly wash. slept in a canopy bed that was equipped with no less than eight pillows. Yeah, Yuri nine. Gagarin was gluten intolerant. Yeah, me too. When wow. he breached the atmosphere, Yuri Gagarin's first words were, Can I go to the bathroom now? Small bladder, Yuri Gagarin wasn't a man. No. The first real man in oh. space was, of course, uh, yeah, Tyson Alan the Star Dog. What? Kaismir the Star Dog, the most richly decorated cosmonaut in the Soviet space program. See, I thought you were going to say Alan Shepard. Please, Alan Shepard was a college boy. Oh, so was I. Before the age of five, Kaismir was already the right hand of the secret police's best agent, Victor Sukov. He could literally smell fear, and he only ate raw red meat three meals a day. Kaismir was not only the first real man in space, he was also the most courageous. Mm. It wasn't until after hearing of his legendary suicide leap directly from his space capsule into his awaiting grave that NASA understood how vital it was to fill every rocket they sent into space with hairy, hard-drinking, nasty sons of bitches. <laughs> Literally. Copper, NASA's That's not first funny. canine... This is not the joke minute. Canine astronaut. Keep your jokes to yourself. Who? I'm talking about Kaismir. I'm sorry. I didn't realize that... We dedicated an entire minute to telling jokes. Come on, Kevin. Lay some of those famous knee slappers on me. Come on. I should have. Oh, please, please, please. Kevin, I'm all worked up now. You got to do it. Oh. All right, all right. Yeah! Loyal, okay, loyal listeners, I'm going to regale Taylor with some of my favorite humdingers while oh. you hear a word from our sponsors. There's a place, if you can believe it where milky white rivers froth graciously from mountain heights, and the migrating geese squawk individually in modest plagues. Canada! A place where each successive calendar year is a whole day longer. Ice is worth as much as silver, and all people, young and old, shop at stores. Canada! There is a place where the sun never shines too much, and the snow seems to go on forever. Canada! In this place, the indigenous people will yank you into their cottages and serve you up a fresh batch of sopping wet poutine with a bottomless glass of syrup for sipping faster than you can say Stephen Harper, Prime Minister of Canada. Canada! I mean, it really, it is nice. You will like it. At the very least, you will be surprised. Canada! I think that's everything. Huge, bland, cold. Canada. Earth's left shoulder. Paid for by the Canadian Department of Travel. 
NASA had taken a few lessons from the take-no-prisoners attitudes of successful cosmonauts like Kaizmir the Stardog, so it was no surprise when the first men chosen to become astronauts were a group of seven rowdy, sexy, cocksure test pilots and a group of thirteen rowdy, hairy, very unlucky chimpanzees. These men were loose cannon types who loved the spotlight and all that came with it. Even before they went into space, they were hugely successful. They toted fast women and fast cars while driving fast. Everyone wanted to be an astronaut. I still want to be one. This national affection gave them a sort of immunity. They could get away with murder, which Mercury astronaut Deke Slayton actually did. Cosmonauts, on the other hand, were highly disciplined and uncommonly tough. Forced to train rigorously in order to handle the incredible change of pressure and temperature, they performed their spacewalks in nothing but a thick coat and furry Yushanka. That's right. No suits and no oxygen either. Decorated cosmonaut Ilya Vakhtenkov recalls how he was answered upon requesting an externalized oxygen tank. Oh, uh, can, I, can I take this one? No. Of course there is air in space, comrade. You're just not breathing hard enough. While Alan Shepard and the gang caroused around in their capsules, drinking and writing letters to their numerous mistresses back at home, most cosmonauts were constantly preoccupied with making alterations and repairs to the ships. Armed with little more than hammers and nails, cosmonauts also needed to be master carpenters, as Russian rockets were usually made of a heavy-duty space-age wood. America, on the other hand, was far more organized. We were slow but steady. Every rocket was carefully tested for a variety of factors to ensure that our beloved astronauts were safe and sound. Conversely, they were rowdy, unkempt sorts who refused to participate in any of the extremely detailed safety procedures concocted by the German slaves. Scientists. Right. Shockingly, not a single person was hurt on either side. Ever. Despite their refusal to obey even the most basic safety and health requests. Not to bring outside fruit or drink on their capsules. Not to smoke while taking off. Not to shout blast off into the intercom during test procedures. These safety procedures were no laughing matter. But our cowering, whipscarred Germans weren't afraid of simple technical failure any more than they were of a scurrilous Russian. No, they feared something far more terrifying. Moon, Moon men. men. Both sides poured an enormous amount of money and time into the development of combat-ready space capsules with the intention of exterminating the alleged species, claiming the moon as their own, mining it for all it was worth. NASA used the two-man Gemini program to test a number of different weapons in space. A convenient alibi, considering that most astronauts since John Glenn insisted on bringing firearms into space. The Gemini program was nothing but a glorified male bonding trip. Well, in that vein, they were a smashing success. Gemini 2's Jim McDivitt and Edward White put aside their empty bottles, had a cube of freeze-dried coffee, and teamed up to break out of the pod bay doors. <laughs> you know, I'll bet that while eating their coffee chunks, one of them must have said, you know, they can put a man into space, but they can't make a decent cube of coffee. That's funny. Yes. Using only a multi-million dollar space pin as a makeshift crowbar, McDivitt the Rivet was able to pry out the four bolts which held the door in place. Over the deafening roar of ground control's protestations, White sprang from the capsule and into history, performing the first American spacewalk. A feat the Russians had unintentionally completed over a year earlier, when cosmonaut Alexei Leonov's ship Voshkod II splintered open, sucking him into the vacuum of space. He would have died too if not for the vice-like grip he managed to maintain on the crude rope he was 
making in the capsule. The Russians really began to lose lead around the time of the Apollo program. For years, they had just been aimlessly sending up countless numbers of rockets without any real protocol. Their way of thinking was quantity over quality. If they could send enough men into space, the question of how to get to the moon would simply present itself. Whereas NASA employees and indentured servants toiled relentlessly to ensure that every one of the astronauts' needs were met. Such was the high price of employing such a ragtag squad of ne'er-do-wells, who were such pranksters that nine of the first ten Apollo missions were scrapped as an attempt to punish them. Apollo 10, for example, was supposed to be the first craft to land on the moon, and Ken Mattingly was to take the first steps, but... <laughs> the evening before, he had a few too many, and he took the ship out for a joyride. <laughs> no one was hurt. However, the higher-ups had to cancel the mission since Mattingly didn't refill the fuel tank. The space race, of course, culminated in the moon landing, undisputedly accomplished first by American heroes and three of my personal heroes, Neil Armstrong, Edwin, Buzz Aldrin, and that other guy. It was a scramble all the way to the finish, though, for both sides. Cosmonauts Pavel Popovich, Valentina Tereshkova, and Boris Egorov set out for the moon upon the mighty Bog Sonsa Odinsat half an hour before Apollo 11. The two spacecrafts bulleted neck and neck towards the moon, sometimes passing so closely that the astronauts could see one another through their windows. Michael Collins, the other guy on Apollo 11, wrote in his autobiography, Michael Collins, the other guy on Apollo 11, about the incident. First time, we snuck up on the Ruskies. Neil and Buzz were already pulling down their spacesuits and showing the competition what an American full moon looks like. Later, when the Russians caught back up, they would return fire with some first-rate Russian-pressed ham and proceed forward, leaving us into the dustless vacuum. Neil and Buzz both began yelling obscenities at one another, shoving and hitting each other, flying in every direction, bouncing off the expensive, life-saving equipment, and sometimes pulling me away from the absinthe I had smuggled aboard and wrangling me into this tussle. We came to peace, though, when we noticed that Neil's blood was coagulating on the O2 gauges. We came to peace. Can only imagine the roughhousing aboard the USSR Sun God when we gave them that trajectory-altering love tap as we zoomed past them just outside lunar orbit. Apparently, when the Americans passed the Russians for the final time, the cosmonauts received orders from the Russian Aviation and Space Agency to abort the mission to avoid the shame of a silver medal. Ever since, the Russians have claimed that the incident never happened and that they were trying to get to Venus the whole time. Mm. Buzz and Neil separated the lunar module from the command module, rotated it so Michael Collins could see them flipping him off, back-pitched, and slowly began to lower themselves down into the sea of tranquility. With surprising grace, the lander plopped down on the lunar surface. Let's take a moment. That soup looks pretty good. It's not half bad. You want some? Sure. Great. Pull up a beanbag. When did you get a beanbag chair? Who even sells these anymore? Uh, yesterday. At the same place I got the New Jersey Devil's Bobblehead. And that one roller skate? Same place. Those four cans of generic diet soda? Same place. Not to mention this graduated cylinder you'll be eating your soup from. And the soup, too. Where did you get such an excitingly unpredictable assortment of goods? At Milo's Mystery Bag Mega Mart, of course. They have everything, even things you might need. All for the low price of twenty nine ninety five per bag. You got all these treasures for only twenty nine ninety five. 
That's an unbelievable deal. There must be a catch. Oh no, there's no catch at Milo's Mystery Bag Mega Mart. Each bag's contents are entirely randomized, so there's no telling what goodies await you. Rotary telephones, half-eaten wedding cakes, monochromatic personal digital assistants. Do they have erasable pins? Perhaps! And if they don't turn up in my first bag, I can just buy another one. Yeah, and hope for the best. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? You bet. Hop on this roller skate with me. We're heading to Milo's Mystery Bag Mega Mart, located off Exit 35 on East Ridge Avenue. Amongst the silent, serene wasteland of the moon, with a constant black and scary sky, and endless, unaltered gray expanding into more nothingness, stood the spider in a regular, angular, ugly, man-made dorm room. Suddenly, it opened its crooked metal hatch, liberating a dense cloud of smoke which tore into nothingness. 238,000 miles away, men, women, children, mole people, and dogs sat glued to their 18-inch television screens to watch history be made. Neil Armstrong slowly lowered himself down the ladder, planted his feet in the dust, and said the legendary phrase, That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Followed by the less recounted, and not a goddamn commie in sight, because I sideswiped his bitch ass out the solar system. Buzz Aldrin, arguably more refined in his linguistics, remarked, Beautiful view. Magnificent desolation. It is accomplished. Upon my return, it's gonna get sexy. At which point, against ground control's orders, he began pumping Sly and the family stone through the radio and rolling in the priceless moon dust. How do you think he smuggled a record player onto the ship? I smuggle stuff aboard airplanes all the time. Yeah, but Delta's no NASA. And I'm no astronaut. Look, these guys got to the moon. Smuggling all the booze, drugs, and women on board was the easy part. Neil and Buzz couldn't luxuriate for too long before looking up and seeing the command module, piloted by Michael Collins. Circling above. Acting as NASA's insurance policy, Collins was granted access to a nuclear payload strong enough to wipe the moon off the face of the Earth in the off chance that Neil and Buzz were overtaken by hostile alien forces, or they went AWOL and claimed lunar ownership for themselves. Though slaves to substance and fools at heart, when it came time to do their job, Neil and Buzz were strictly business. They immediately began harvesting the moon dust. Not exactly. Um, before beginning what? to mine the moon, they had to be sure it was a safe no. environment. Prime Directive Numero Uno was a search and destroy mission. I figured we could skip the uneventful S&D because they did not find any moon men. That is, uh... Because I'm... if we had, they would have brought one, or at least part of one, back to Earth for study. Think about what you're saying. These dudes have a lunar module critically overstuffed with precious contraband and human women, not to mention the hordes of space dust they have orders to squeeze into every available crevice of the craft. The place is so overloaded that the crew's lives are reliant upon the oxygen created by the fruiting marijuana plants stinking up the limb. They aren't going to risk stuffing another person in there. A moon woman? Maybe. But a moon man? Please. NASA? No. America? has better things to do than to go to the moon and pick up dudes. We will have to agree to disagree whether or not NASA found life on the moon. What is known for sure 
is that the astronauts made it back to Earth safe and sound after discarding over 60% of the LEMS hardware to fit the eight tons of moon dust they'd collected. NASA, however, was mortified to find days later that the moon dust was nothing more than sand, discolored a boring gray by high levels of radiation, and a few trace amounts of bland elements like zinc, iridium, and carbon. Lyndon Johnson refuted this discovery and championed NASA to return to the moon five more times to find the real good stuff, but unfortunately turned up again and again nothing but kilos of shake. Upon learning of moon dust's worthlessness, the Russians diverted energy from the moon and set their sights on Venus, which they claimed to be pursuing the entire time after the fact. To be fair, though, they were the first to set a probe on the surface of Venus, which sent back the first pictures and data about the surface and atmospheric composition of the planet, as well as a Russian flag, both of which melted in a matter of seconds. Yeah. But who cares about Venus? The Russians. Either way, obviously. both America and Russia had blown their loads attempting successfully or otherwise to get to the moon. And neither country had anything to show for it. America only had hummocks of irradiated moon dust to compensate for the billions spent to obtain it. So, like any good capitalist nation, the government marketed the toxic moon dust at an exorbitant price to the taxpaying public as a keepsake or souvenir of the space race. The Soviets' quest for financial recompense was to barter with a third contender in the space race, the European Space Research Organization, which at this point had not even gotten a fish into space. The Soviets took pity by trading used equipment for thousands of tons of potatoes. And contrary to what you might think, the Soviets got a bargain. The rockets they unloaded were rickety, flimsy, and no longer fit for the detailed, experimental woodworking that cosmonauts were tasked with. The potatoes, on the other hand, were fat-ripe Yukon golds, suitable for mashing, boiling, baking, and even distillation. It's estimated the potatoes fed the entirety of Russia for two and a half years. Russia also attempted to raise funds by selling their remaining eight German scientists. America heard of this and nabbed them all for little more than a few crates of tang, which, by the way, the Russians had been trying to get their hands on for years. Many of the Germans escaped to Brazil before ever landing in Cape Canaveral. But one stayed. Werner von Braun, mm. decrepit but fiery, had officially defected to the United States. In exchange for a severe reduction in daily floggings, von Braun divulged all of the details of the Soviets' newest project, Solute 1. It was supposed to be the first space station where cosmonauts could carry out long-term experiments, and it was highly classified until von Braun transcribed the blueprints from memory. By this time, in the late 70s, many of the astronauts had retired or gone missing. But when word of this information began to circulate around NASA... They began to reappear from the woodwork. Von Braun had even been able to describe the elaborate procedures necessary to dock the soon-to-be-completed Skylab with Salyut. And in a daring midnight raid, a moth-eaten cadre of American heroes scrambled into their foe's territory and uh, really wrecked up the place. Everyone was there. Armstrong, Shepard, Aldrin, Lovell, the Rivet, that other guy from the moon landing, and even crackly old Von Braun. <laughs> it was a who's who of astronaut parties, and even the anonymous gangle of surprised cosmonauts knew it was coming to them. Pink bellies, noogies, wet, wet willies, willies, and an even an improvised space toilet swirly were the order of the day. Until, that is, the astronauts stumbled upon the monstrosity the Russians had been studying. Lenin, now seven and a half feet of titanium and raw muscle, had been resurrected. And that's pretty much all we know. The astronauts won't talk about it. But only six of the original seven in the raiding party made it back. That old spitfire Von Braun was revealed in a heroic move to have been thrown towards Lenin as sacrificial fodder while the astronauts jettisoned Skylab from Solute. 
Some believed that it was all an elaborate plan for von Braun to reconcile with his former captives, whom he had allied with decades before. When presented with this possibility on an episode of 60 Minutes in 1993, all six cheerful astronauts suddenly turned silent and green, as if they had the manifestation of a crippling childhood fear and peer in front of them. After a literal 106 seconds of silent dead air, the ever-eloquent Buzz Aldrin said only this, I know not who suffered more. Von Braun, or those who watched him perish. And that's not only where Von Braun's story ends, but also the space races. Which means our stories. Which means, great job, Taylor. Thank you, Kevin. We did a lot of research for this one. Very proud. High yeah. five team. High all five around. to you, high, high even five. though you're 12 feet away. Well, that's the way things go. You know, I'd like a little reward. I've got just the thing for you. I hope it's some mail. It is. Wonderful. M-A-I-L mail. Yeah. Mail. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, Taylor, this letter comes from Adolphus Krause in Cincinnati. He's a professor professor of blimbology. Oh, wow. Hello, professor. Thank uh, you for writing. He says, dearest Tay and K, first time writer, many time listener, I just wanted to express my frustration with the lack of discussion to Henrik Feisberger's well-attended blimp jousting events held just outside Munich for many years after World War II. With the war over, nothing to do, and no one to cheer on, Feisberger brought up all the remaining blimps and uh, bought, bought up all the remaining blimps and created his blimp derby, also known as blurbies. Every young German boy has fond memories of these events and their effects on the country's morale. Come on, guys. How could you ignore this? But there's no question mark there, so I don't know. Maybe it's, come on, guys, how could you ignore... How could you ignore this? I think it's a sentence fragment. Uh, uh, Professor, what was the last name? Uh, uh, Krause? Professor Krause. If you're going to send us a letter, just have the gumption to finish it. I mean, this is the first unfinished letter we've ever received. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if you meant to ask us a question, how could we ignore this? The answer is obvious. We're choosy. We're picky men. And we, we know what's interesting to our audience. And, well, we prefer that you not be among them, especially if you can't finish a sentence like a normal human being. And I would also just say that a topic such as blimp derbies, to me, doesn't really belong in a podcast about blimps quite it, as much as it belongs in an extreme sports podcast. Or a podcast about derbies, which we will take into uh, advisement. Sir, we, to be fair to you, we will take into advisement. We, yeah, so stay tuned. We may have a future podcast about derbies. And they may include blurbies, but they probably won't no because promises. you didn't finish your letter so why should we finish a podcast and on that note that's we we're, that's our podcast is finished that's right. that's everything right uh so we would like to thank of uh, flip stitzkin for uh, you, performing the voice work for michael collins from his autobiography couldn't get michael collins not alive not doing well so and uh i guess that's everything so uh i'm Kay. i'm i'm tay thank you for listening to Know it all with Tay and Kay. Join us next time when we talk to you about Idaho. This week's episode of Know It All with Tay and Kay was brought to you by Scissors.